and welcome to episode three of the Bible and Me podcast. This episode, Molly chats with Joe Fothergill of the Filling Station Network. Joe shares her faith and her struggles with postnatal depression, story of the founding and the work of the Filling Station Network. It's a great and very personal episode and I'm sure there'll be something for you in it. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals speaking and may not represent the views of Preset Ministries UK. We hope and pray that this podcast will bless you in your walk of faith. If it does, leave us a rating or review and subscribe for more podcasts every Friday. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Joe Fothergill to our The Bible and Me podcast today. Joe read economics at Cambridge worked as a stockbroker for a short time and then became full-time in Christian work. Woven into her story is being trapped by an avalanche and later suffering from serious postnatal depression and becoming suicidal. She's currently the Director of Evangelism and Mercy Ministries for the Filling Station Network in the UK and overseas. She loves tennis, loves spending time with her husband, dogs and daughters, not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Loves visiting Cape Town and loves chocolate but not coffee. Welcome, Joe. It's fantastic to have you with us today. Joe, how did you become a follower of Jesus? Well, it's lovely to be here, Molly, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this interview. I became a follower of Jesus when I was 27. I uh, grew up in a home that was, was happy and, in a sense, God fearing in terms of values but um, it wasn't really a Christian home. We did uh, church on Christmas and Easter and I did get confirmed when I was 16 mainly because that was the thing you did at that stage in my school. It meant a nice weekend out from school and a really good confirmation tea but that was obviously not the right reasons to get confirmed. I remember having questions at that time but not feeling they were really answered. So um, I did it more as a rite of passage more than anything else. Mm. Um, So I hadn't really had thoughts about God. Uh, My life went fairly swimmingly well (laughs) for the first part of it. And when I was at university, actually, I was invited along to hear Billy Graham speak by a friend who's obviously one of the most successful evangelists of our time. Um, but I remember listening to him and it all slightly went over my head and at that time I sat next to a guy who was a bit of a friend but I didn't know very well who was actually a Christian and I do remember sort of being impressed that this meant something to him but I didn't get it at all. I think that in my case God needed a loud hailer to get my attention and when I was 23 I went and did a skiing season. I worked in a ski resort for four or five months and got to really love skiing and by the end I particularly loved skiing off piste Uh, and the following year I went with a group uh, to Val d'Isere, a ski resort in France and uh, with this particular group uh, there were about 12 of us I was actually with my boyfriend at the time and several other friends and it was a wonderful uh, weekend of snow and then we had a Monday morning, which was just gloriously sunny, and it just looked like perfect off-piece conditions. And um, we went up a particular run, and I came down the other side with a guy in our skiing party who was quite a good skier, and we came off the piste, and it was wonderful powder snow. And we went back up the lift, and I remember saying to my then-boyfriend, follow me, this is really fun. Come off the piste and uh, zip down the soft snow. Uh, He hadn't actually skied as much as I had, but I think he was sort of trying to keep up with his girlfriend. And so we went, uh, we were not far off the piste, but we were off the piste. We went uh, across to the soft snow and I started going down through some sort of virgin snow and I turned around and instead of seeing him, I just saw this sort of waterfall of snow coming down on top of me. And I remember thinking, this is an avalanche. (laughs) I was actually caught, I sort of veered to my left, I was caught on the edge of it. Uh, I was buried but not for very long. I was I was buried in such a way that my hands landed near my head so that when I sort of pushed and burrowed, um, I saw some blue sky above my head. So I sort of knew I was okay, but I couldn't, I couldn't get out. Um, I was subsequently dug out, but so I, I didn't 
really, I, I knew pretty quickly that I was going to, you know, I was going to live. But the worst thing was the next 45 minutes when, um, which was spent trying to find Mark, my, my boyfriend, as there was no sign of him. And um, after 45 minutes of people arriving, helicopter, dogs, ski instructors with sticks walking up the mountain, sort of poking, trying to find something, um, I was actually taken off the mountain in the helicopter with the doctor. Because I think at that point they thought if they found him, he would be dead. Um, and I remember thinking this is, you know, it was like your worst nightmare. I remember thinking Mark's dead. And it wasn't just that he was dead. It was that I really felt it was my fault that he was dead. And I remember thinking I wouldn't be able to live with that. And that was the first time, to be honest, I put up a serious prayer. You know, it was the first time something had gone very wrong. Mm -hmm. And I remember just saying, if you're there, God, please do something. And um, miraculously, I believe God did. Uh, I was tranquilized and fairly out of it for the rest of the day. But they did find Mark. He was unconscious. Uh, he was taken down to the local hospital. Uh, he could have had brain damage and lung, lung damage. He was buried for almost 45 minutes, which is pretty a extraordinary, a very long time. Uh, a few weeks before, the top ski guide in the resort had been killed in an avalanche. He'd been buried for 10 minutes. So um, the next day, we went down to hospital, and there he was sitting up in bed. He was a very laid-back character, saying... Josie, you are sacked as my ski guide. <laughs> but, but actually, that morning before we went down, I remember going along to the ch to finding a church in my overhung state from the tranquilizers I'd been on, and on my knees saying thank you to God. I didn't know him. If someone had walked in then and said, this is how you can know Jesus, I suspect I might have become a Christian then, but I didn't have any friends who were Christians. I had no family that were Christians. So that was definitely very significant. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something I could share particularly well I couldn't really share. I didn't have anyone to share it with. Um, that was definitely the beginning. A couple of years later, I went traveling to Australia and New Zealand and ended up staying with a friend who'd actually, I'd sat next to at the Billy Graham when I was at university who was working in New Zealand then. And I talked to him about it. And I stayed with him for a week while I was working. And every night we talk about God. And, you know, he was obviously just witnessing to me and could see things were happening. Um, and then he... Um, I went off and started traveling in New Zealand and Australia and that slightly sort of lost impetus. I'm giving you the very long version, Molly. <laughs> this is a, I'm sure our listeners will be delighted to hear it because actually this is just a real life journey. Of yeah. Faith. So you had this traumatic situation with the avalanche. Yeah. Um, and yet that didn't necessarily, um, it wasn't the exact catalyst for you to become a follower of Jesus, but it was part of the it journey. It was part of the journey. Yes. Yeah. And then, Subsequently, I came back after sort of eight months of traveling in Australia and New Zealand and, and got a job uh, with a bank, uh, an American bank, which involved me being sent to New York for a year. And that was actually, it was three weeks before I came back from New York, I actually became a Christian. During that time, I, I actually developed a really chronic back condition for about nine months. And I remember thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll pray about that. And that uh, combined with meeting a couple of Christians who took me along to a church and there was one girl particularly who had quite a, 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 an influence on me and the last month I was there she took me to a campus crusade for Christ mm -hmm. evening, a few evenings actually and I remember thinking you know in my, I would I was sort of you know had that you know standard sort of vision of Christians with you know, anoraks and sandals. And I, I remember walking into this room and there were all people like me who were working. I was working on Wall Street at that time. and they, So it was a very much a ministry. They were professional people. And uh, we had Bible study and then we talked about the Bible study. So I remember being quite riveted by that. And just before I was due to come back to the UK, the lady and, and her husband who ran the ministry said to me, Joe, have you made a commitment? And I remember thinking, I don't really know what that is. And she gave me the four spiritual laws, which you may be familiar with, a little booklet, which just explained the gospel. And no one had ever really explained that to me. Or they probably had, but I hadn't heard it. Um, and there was a prayer at the end, and she said, come back next week. And if you'd like to pray this prayer, um, we'd love to do that with you. So that's what I did the next week. And then I came back to the UK, not knowing any Christians <laughs> still, no family that were Christians. Um, but amazingly, God was very gracious because when I got back, the two Christians I'd ever met in my life, one was getting married, the guy I stayed with in New Zealand, and I had told him, I think I'd written to him or told him. So at his wedding, various people came up to me who sort of vaguely knew me and said, Joe, you know, what's happened to you? And they were obviously all Christians. And I remember one of them said, go and do an Alpha course at Holy Trinity Brompton. 
and um, so I thought well that's what I'll do so I did and that was great because not only did I I knew something had changed when I prayed this prayer but I didn't have you know much information still and that's where Alpha was amazing and just sort of giving you know me the basics of the Christian faith and also just making new friends actually um, and starting to get involved in Christian fellowship, which was obviously very important. And so how did your life change um, after you came to know Jesus and made that commitment to, fo- to follow him? I think, you know, in some ways it was a sort of gradual change. I definitely remember after I'd prayed this prayer, feeling a deep sense of sort of, oh, hooray, I finally found the purpose or the reason. I, I wouldn't be able to say what it was, but I definitely felt that, um, you know, that questioning of what my life's about, which I was sort of buried probably quite deeply, would sort of surface occasionally, and then you sort of just carry on because you were, you know, just enjoying your life or whatever. But I remember thinking, um, and also a sort of almost relief that someone else was going to direct my life, actually, because I never quite knew what I really wanted to do. Um, So definitely a sense of sort of peace and, um, yeah, like, you know, there was there was a purpose for my life but as I say I couldn't even then have particularly explained much to you I probably hadn't you know Mm -hmm. I've just done a couple of bible studies you know it was all so it was yeah so there was just a sort of something deep inside that I knew was different it wasn't you know angels and whistles and bells and sort of Mm -hmm. but it was yeah there was definitely a change inside um and certainly doing alpha you know I just loved that and also, I, I, I think right from the start, I had a real passion to share what I'd discovered, um, which wasn't always received kindly, but I'm probably over-enthusiastic sometimes. But um, yeah, and certainly getting involved in a good church was obviously hugely significant for me. And so being um, a stockbroker, how long were you a stockbroker for, actually, in the end? I had, well, that year was a year in New York, was a sort of training year. And then I came back and ended up working for four years in their London office. Uh, for a, a bank called Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, and so, in a sense, I'm, I'm very grateful for that job. It got me to New York, and obviously that's where I, I found my faith in, in Christ. Um, when I came back, um, to be honest, I was more interested in sharing my faith in my office than selling lots of <laughs> stocks to my clients. Um, and I did actually go along. I worked in the city. I used to go along to a church when they did a sort of Tuesday lunchtime service, and um, so I, I was okay at it, but I wasn't brilliant at it because I wasn't that passionate about it, to be honest, the actual broking side. And actually after a few years, as I was starting to get more involved in my church, I remember saying to God, oh, this is, you know, come on, I can't be a stockbroker. I'm not that, I don't care whether the Dow Jones <laughs> goes up or down. I needed to care, but I didn't. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, don't you want me to be a missionary in Africa sort of thing, um, And that was, yeah, as I say, when I was getting more involved at the church. Um, I had met Richard at that point. He was actually on my Alpha course. He's my husband. Um, Although we we don't go out for a couple of years. We were actually just good friends. He was the one I, he became what's called, he was head of what's called a pastorate group. There was 60 people. So I remember he was my sort of spiritual mentor. You know, any any questions I'd have, I'd sort of bring him up. How does this work? So we were good friends for a couple of years and we were both sort of seeing other people. So we we just developed a friendship actually before we actually started to go out. So Um, you transitioned from being a full-time stockbroker to being a Christian ministry worker. How did that happen? Well, I think we always sort of, we always debate the timing. I think... Before Rich and I actually started going out, Richard had had it. He was working in PR, and he had a very specific experience, which he may talk about, of being called into full-time ministry. He really didn't think, he thought he was going to, you know, carry on in PR and do stuff at the church, which is sort of what he was doing. Um, and um, then the Lord had other ideas, obviously. And it was a, it was a very specific experience of God. Uh, which was great, actually, because, you know, whenever he doubted it in the years ahead, he always really knew. And as I say, I'm sure he will share some of that. So um, he was already, and obviously that that process of, you know, um, starting to make moves towards going into full-time ministry takes a bit of time, particularly in the Anglican Church. And um, so we were sort of in that process as we were going out and getting engaged. Um, And so... We, but I was also definitely feeling, you know, like I didn't want to ca- carry on with my stockbroking. So it was, it was, in that way, the Lord was working in us both, even probably just before we met or started actually going out together. 
Um, so actually, we got married in um, 1991, and six months later, both gave up our jobs um, to go and study at uh, theological college. Well, he was studying; I, I didn't study. I did other things, but. And so Richard then studied and became a curate, is that correct? Yes, so two years at Theological College in Bristol. I went and did a tennis coaching course, which was something I'd always wanted to do, and just taught tennis to try and earn a bit of money. And, yeah, and then we worked in Twickenham, a lovely church there called St. Stephen's, quite a large Anglican church, evangelical church. And we worked under, the vicar there was a, a lovely man called Martin Pepiot, Martin and Cynthia Pepiot. Uh, and their eldest daughter, they had four children, it was one of our closest friends, her and her husband. And in fact, their other daughter and husband were at Theological College with us. So we had sort of close connections. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and we had five years there with Richard being the curate. Um, and after your five years there, did you immediately go to South Africa or...? Yes, when we finished that curacy, it was about a year or so before we left, we knew we were going to, we'd got the job offer to go out to work in Cape Town with the church there. And was that so an Anglican church? That was an Anglican church, yeah. Um, we'd always prayed actually about going abroad for a, for a period of time. And I had spent some time in South Africa when I was 21. Um, and we'd been out briefly uh, during our time in Twickenham, just some friends uh, invited us out. So we knew it a little bit, not very well, but. And what was your role? What were you being? What were you asked to do over there? Um, Richard was joined the staff team of a large church, which was actually quite similar to St Stephen's. It was an evangelical, uh, charismatic church. Just a lovely, lovely group of people. So probably seven or eight hundred in the church, and they had been sensing for some time that God was calling them to church plant. In the sense that they had, I think, three services going, and they were all fairly full. And they'd been feeling for quite a few years, actually. And again, by some extraordinary sort of God incidences, <laughs> we linked up with them. Richard was interested in doing some church planting. We were both. And actually, as I say, he, I'm sure he'll tell you that story. But um, so the idea was that he would join the staff of that church for uh, a year with a view to taking a group out of the church and starting a new church. And that was all they knew. They didn't know how that was going to happen or... You know, they didn't particularly have a building or anything. So it was very much a pioneering thing. Um, but it was, yeah, it was amazing. We, we had a, a wonderful time there. You um, said that you, once you became a Christian, actually you were just keen to tell other people about Jesus. Yeah. Do you believe that's uh, a spiritual gift that God has given you, just to share um, the good news of Jesus with people? Or? Yeah, maybe. I, I definitely know that's one of my passions, and I almost don't get it when people don't want to you know what I mean or, or uh, you know, I completely understand that God's gifted us in all in different ways I'm not an evangelist in the sense that I can stand up and give a brilliant evangelistic message I'm more relationally I think uh, evangelistic um, or at least that's a sort of you know that is the passion that I have and certainly in the early days when I became a Christian you know I just wanted all my none of my university friends were Christians and my family weren't particularly and I was always desperately trying to haul them off onto Alpha <laughs> to the extent that sometimes I remember one friend of mine after one particular party I'd been to and you know coming outside with me and saying Joe you just need to dial down on this God thing you know <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna lose your friends at this stage so obviously wasn't doing it very effectively but I certainly had the passion <laughs> mm -hmm. and so in South Africa how did you see God at work where, where do you see uh, it was really a lovely lovely time we'd obviously uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute we'd had quite a difficult time in Twickenham because my health wasn't good at that time so for us South Africa was just it was a, it was a healing time it was also a fruitful time by the grace of God we so we did start with literally 50 people I think we had one guy in our youth group <laughs> and quite a few kids actually um, and we bought a warehouse um, and even the way God provided for that was extraordinary it had been used by a party planning company so um, church, the met. we literally the first time Richard did communion he had his overalls on we'd had a sort of church work party because this 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 particular building um, was was absolutely piled high to the ceiling with with sort of props for parties when we first went to look at it so obviously that all came out but it needed it was literally one warehouse and so there was quite a lot of work that needed doing to it so we had this sort of work party and I remember the first service we were literally all with our sort of painting kit on, taking communion and um, celebrating this 
beginning. Yeah, and that and that did grow quite uh, rapid. Well, you know, we were when we left six and a half, after six and a half years of being in Cape Town, it was about four hundred and fifty people, and we saw a lot of people coming to faith, which was lovely. We did Alpha quite a lot. Uh, we did things like the marriage course, sort of probably halfway through, you know, a few years after we'd started the church. Uh, and we just had a lovely, lovely group of people. Um, and what was nice was it was quite a mixed group. There were five particular, there were five churches in the parish of St. John's, and our church became the sixth church. Um, and so we drew, uh, three of those churches were in a colored area, so we had quite a few uh, colored people coming. Um, in Cape Town, you know, it's it, you've obviously got a, the, the, the colored population. Everyone sort of thinks it's a black-white issue in South Africa. But actually in Cape Town, there's a large colored population. And any of the, the actual blacks who are there have normally come down from uh, sort of Eastern Cape to get work. And they live there was sort of in a different area of Cape Town. But we did do some outreach into the local rehoused sort of squatters settlement sort of near our church. But yeah, so it w it was quite a nice mixture, mostly white, predominantly white. But as I say, we did have this group from the churches uh, in the in other churches in the parish who came, and so we grew, yeah, and, and quite a lot through people coming to know the Lord, which was obviously what we wanted. We didn't want just people coming to our church from other churches, particularly, yeah. um, and lots of families. We had a great children's program actually, and obviously our children were very small at that stage, and we had a lovely children's worker. Um, so all that uh, was great. And, and actually those people that we saw coming to faith are now really good f and close friends. They became very good and close friends. So it was an exciting time for you. It was a healing time for you. Yes, it was. And let's talk about that just for a moment because one might think that um, all has been sunshine and roses for you, having had a Cambridge education, being a stockbroker, marrying a Christian, doing great things for God but actually it's not been that easy at times has it tell me a little bit about that uh, no um, at the very start of our ministry in Twickenham when we arrived there I was um, heavily pregnant with our first child and in fact she was due literally about a month no less than that I think a week after we actually moved in um, and you know what should have been a very wonderful <laughs> Uh, time actually when she was born it was just the beginning of a very long and horrendous nightmare in the sense that uh, I about a week after she was born I felt started feeling very uh, panicky and fearful and I couldn't sleep and the sleep not being able to sleep wasn't anything to do with Anna our daughter crying it was just I just was sort of completely found myself very wired I think probably is the word to use but I didn't really know what was going on and after about 10 days I was diagnosed with mild postnatal depression uh, and by a Christian doctor actually when I was down staying at my parents place who said I think this sort of thing can be worse for Christians. Uh, I had been trying to sort of you know all this fear and anxiety that was sort of overwhelming me. I remember feeling sort of like why can't I just stand on these scriptures you know <laughs> and so you, you know I was condemned well I was trying to but uh, you know it wasn't sort of I, I was and then I was sort of getting very condemned that I, I felt like somehow this was my fault that I couldn't believe what I was reading and I was still so it was all gets a you know, big muddle in my head <laughs> but um, I, when I was diagnosed with mild postnatal depression I remember thinking my goodness it felt horrible and I remember thinking I, I can't imagine what severe postnatal depression must be like. Um, but I then discovered uh, in that about a year, a week later, I found myself going down into a very, very horrible black place in my head. And I, it was a suicidal mode. I couldn't, I can't, I can't really describe it except that, and as I say to people, I'm quite glad I can't quite remember, but about how it felt because that would be a bit frightening. But it was, um, I felt like my head was going to explode actually. Um, and I remember trying to sort of express that and then various people like my husband and lovely people, they could see that I obviously wasn't well. But when I tried to say, I actually don't want to live anymore. I, and I remember asking my vicar's wife, if I commit suicide, will I go to hell? You know, I remember it was asking those sort of questions and she was, she, 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 she was amazing. When I look back, I think, she didn't she didn't sort of say yes you will don't do it she 
she said, Joe, I think that we have a very, very loving, gracious God. She didn't give me a le- she didn't give me a way out to do it, but she also didn't. She was just amazing. She sort of slightly dodged the question in a sense, but she just said, "I think that he understands we're in when we're in a very frail place." So she was she was very good the way she answered. Actually, not that it made any difference to me; it didn't make me feel any better. But <laughs> as I look back, I think she was very wise of what she said. But it became quite clear after I can't remember two and a half three weeks um, that things had got quite bad and um and actually at one point I had a it was extraordinary I had almost like a sort of I didn't know what was happening I had a sort of fit really it was one of like an epile- I don't know what it was but it was almost like got the point in my brain where I couldn't take things anymore and um I remember having no idea what was happening to me and at that point you know the doctor was called and um I remember she sent everybody out the room <laughs> And then she's, uh, when I sort of calmed down a bit, and I was so confused. I thought, you know, am I demonized? What's what's going on? I, d- I was, and I, I remember saying to her, have you seen this, bef- have you seen this sort of thing before? And she said, yes, I have. And then she'd tell me what's been happening. And so basically I said to her, I, I want to die, but no one will let me or gets it. Um, so she was actually very good the way she also dealt with it and at that point she said to my the vicar's wife who was in the house she said she needs to be in hospital she needs to be have 24-hour supervision because uh, yeah because she would. could see that where how bad things were um you obviously weren't able to look after no no well I mean what was so amazing was that I would have been hospitalized but Cynthia my vicar's wife sort of said to the doctor she said well is there anything that she will have in hospital that she couldn't have being cared for at home. And the doctor said, no, if you've got people who, you know, will take care of her, um, sh- but she needs to have someone with her all the time. 24, uh, hours, 24 a day. hours a day. And so Cynthia, amazingly, she organized, there were five ladies in the church. Uh, a lot of them, um, there were ex-midwives, just, they're, they're people I'm st- still very close to, as you can imagine. And they literally did a rotor. They did two-hour shifts including overnight or then they do overnight shifts because I wasn't sleeping at all and Richard was on the sofa next door they would be in the bedroom with me and um, they didn't let me out of their sight and then they would document I didn't really realize at the time they would write down how I was what I said what I did they the doctor made me breastfeed in the sense they you know I had no interest in my daughter or but he he really tried to encourage them to encourage me to breastfeed so I did carry on breastfeeding Anna but I couldn't look after her. I was just trying to get through the next minute of the day. So this went on, on and off for about two and a half months where I would have sort of a day or two of literally trying to get through the moments um, and just being suicidal. And then I'd sort of come a little bit out of that and I would feel not suicidal, but I'd feel horrible and traumatized actually and scared because of going back into that place, which I then did. So meanwhile, all antidepressants were being upped and upped and upped. Um, so that was about two and a half, three months of that. So so for, for three months, we had full-time. I mean, the church were extraordinary. Full-time. We had these ladies popping in. We had people paying for a full-time maternity nurse to help look after Anna. We had meals delivered to our house every night for three months. We had people popping in and with the, you know, to take the ironing off and do all the ironing and the washing. and the It was the most extraordinary expression of the body of christ working you know where where was god oh god for me he was completely out of the window to be honest i i mean i i was sort of off my head really to be honest but and i remember i remember saying to the doctor not the same doctor who found me when i was in this terrible state but the doctor who ended up being under who'd actually had a breakdown himself so he was very empathetic he wasn't really a christian or he had a very had a brother in our church who was a christian and i and i remember once saying you know this is just hell and you know I don't know where Jesus is or something and he and then he I can't remember what he said he said something like well Jesus experienced hell and I remember saying yeah but not for this long you know I really that's how I mm. that's sort of how I felt um so when I when that horrible two and a half three months when things started I started coming out of that gradually a combination of a lot of very medication and then I end up having estrogen patches and various things I remember you know, the first time I'd managed to take Anna for a walk in the park, you know, when she was three and a half months old. 
just railing at God saying where were you and what was that you know I don't so I I had to sort of work through that of being abandoned and um I was sort of very traumatized um and I couldn't pray and I couldn't I couldn't read my bible couldn't do any of that <laughs> but you'd had the expression of love through the yes, body of yes. Christ coming around you I had but I couldn't really appreciate at that at point to be honest I was still sort of suffering I think from and also I was still depressed you know I wasn't suddenly completely fine I was still depressed I just wasn't suicidally depressed mm. and actually you, you you went on to have a second daughter didn't you uh, yes which you was quite a big decision um yes I mean I I, I as I started coming out Certainly, the Lord sort of, I remember my vicar's wife, again, she was amazing. She would just come every week and sit with me, and she didn't have any pat answers. She would just ask me how I was doing. She wouldn't give me any sort of, you know, she kept the Bible almost well out of it. She, she didn't even talk about God. She just would say, how are you doing? And I'd just cry and cry and cry. Um, but actually, just in terms of my relationship with God, I just occasionally would put on a worship Um and I would just listen to it and cry. And I think God in his grace just started to gradually draw me back. I didn't have the answers. I still had lots of questions. But in terms of my relationship with God, gradually I started getting a bit more back on track with him. And then, yeah, I, I still was on antidepressants, struggling with depression. But, you know, after a couple of years, you know, we didn't just want one child. There was a risk that it would happen again. But I, I believed that God had sort of told me that it wouldn't happen again um and obviously we sought medical advice and um, they said well 30 percent chance it could happen again particularly obviously it was very severe for me um but we decided to try and have another child and um so i think anna was about uh yeah she was nearly three and i got pregnant a second time and that was in the obviously the at the end of this five year period um at Twickenham and sadly uh even though I, I I ended up being under the care of a top psychiatrist in postnatal illnesses pre having my second child because I'd been so ill the first time and I remember he had a he said well we've we're pioneering this new treatment and um, it involves you being in hospital for two weeks under my care and you will have the baby you won't be able to breastfeed you'll have estrogen a lot of estrogen heparin injections to keep stop your blood clotting and he said there's different options you could do you can just not do anything and hope it doesn't happen again you can be put on antidepressants the moment you had your baby or we can do what he called the belt and braces and this this new treatment that he was pioneering he had only 30 patients had had it 27 had been fine and they were all patients who had like me had had very very severe postnatal depression or postpartum psychosis which is another horrible postnatal illness uh, and so we decided to go for the belt and braces approach. And so I had Helena in the hospital in um, St. Mary's Roehampton in London. We were, and then I went off to this hospital in Croydon to be under his care for two weeks. Uh, it was a psychiatric hospital called the Bethlehem Hospital. Um, but sadly, the treatment didn't work for me. And um, I ended up back in that place again uh, for seven weeks, actually. Of, and at that time I was just suicidal all the time and I did make a couple of attempts on my life um, which were not sort of obviously successful or or particularly serious in the sense but you know they they were definitely um, as far as I was concerned I yeah so again I was I was really uh, friends who saw me then uh, you know just said I was just another person I was sort of um, um, but again you know I was I had 24-hour supervision I had we had 24-hour care. I had a psychiatric nurse and a nursery nurse assigned to Helena, our second child, for three months. You know, and that was pretty extraordinary on the NHS. But it was, yeah, so I ended up being there three months. And actually, at the end, the pills were not working. So I had to have ECT treatment, which is, you know, when they um, apply shocks to your brain. Which actually they had suggested after Anna and Richard was like, no, we're not doing that. But in the meantime, we'd had conversations with people who knew a little bit more about it. And actually was sort of saying it could be quite effective. And certainly they ran out of options at that point. So they decided to go that route. Um, and actually that helped me um, without that treatment. I Well, obviously I believe God was in all of this and was looking after me. Um, but 
that's what started me coming out of the horrible black suicidal mode. So yes, so <laughs> having babies was not my strong point, let's put it that way. <laughs> and Helena and Anna, are how old are they now? They are 20 and 24. 20 and 24. Mm. And Joe, that was just obviously such a traumatic time of your lives. Yeah. Um, was there a verse in scripture that really spoke to you uh, during that time that um, you can now look back on and say, that was significant to me? Yes, I think, you know, the well-known scripture in Jeremiah 29, when God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Um, you know, the plans to give you a hope in the future. The hope thing for me um, was huge because I just lost that. Uh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you but the word hope you know because I for me it was hopelessness was a huge you know that's just what was over me despair and hopelessness and it was I you know I still very much believe and, and the doctors sort of said to me it was a it was a very physiological depression in my case it literally hit me so quickly I'd never had a day's depression before I had a baby so my hormones just went up the creek and they don't fully understand still how postnatal depression works mm. um so, but uh, but that scripture, you know, and even since then when I've still, you know, as I say, I, I struggled with depression for like eight years uh, after the children were born, but that became very key for me to try and hold on to that promise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just had to keep speaking that over it. I remember writing it out and putting it by my bed and, uh, um, you know, and the Lord has done that for me. Because you're now the director of um, well, you tell me what your role is. You're part of the filling station um, a team. Yeah. Your husband, Richard Fothergill, set up the filling station 2006, I think it was. That yes, right? that's sort of, well, yes, it, it started us, around then. Tell us what, what is the filling station and what's your role um, in the filling station? Well, the filling station uh, is a ministry that actually, it wasn't like sort of God gave us a vision and said, go and do this. It started uh, with a small group of people in a little village east of Box. We live near Bath, um, who had all got converted on an Alpha course, but struggled to find what they found on Alpha in their local church. Uh, and so they just started a monthly, it was almost like a prayer and praise evening. Um, and um, they were all fairly new Christians. Um, and anyway, we sort of got involved. It was when we were in between, we weren't quite sure we'd been involved in setting up a little cafe, ch cafe church in Bristol when we first came back from South Africa. Um, and then that, for whatever reason, we'd pulled back from that, um, and we were th not sure where we were, what we were supposed to be doing, to be honest. We had about a year when we were like, Lord, what are we supposed to be doing? But we got involved with this little group, almost as a sort of side thing, really, to just help them lead it, and we just relaunched it, gave it a new name, tried to get some decent sort of worship, and uh, help them with their teaching program and the prayer ministry side. Uh, and that grew, actually. It grew over the next couple of years. It it grew quite rapidly and people were coming from quite a long way and the Lord was really moving in that meeting which was very exciting um, and out of that grew other meetings and um, so basically the filling station uh, we say that we're there for, to sort of encourage uh, evangelism and renewal particularly in rural areas where maybe you know the local church is struggling and not terribly alive um, and people are often you know lovely Christians who are really trying to support what's going on in their local church, but they're sort of drying out spiritually <laughs> in the process or having to drive an hour and a half to find a good church. So that's really what it started. It started as just being a monthly meeting and it actually not in church venues. We, 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 we don't have any meetings that meeting. We encourage it not to be in a church venue. Uh, and so we sort of, we call it a sort of monthly spiritual top up really. Uh, filling, a filling station. station I know. Um, um, so, and it's taken us by surprise what the Lord has done because, as I say, it wasn't like you get the vision and said, "Go and do this." We were sort of thinking, "Well, this is something on the side we're doing until we know what God's got us to do, what's us to do." And then, you know, there was one meeting, then there were three meetings, then there were five meetings, and then people came from he you know friends from Henley, and they were like, "We need something like this in Henley," and the whole thing has grown. So we now have ninety-one meetings in this well in this country, and we have about um, that actually sorry includes the meetings abroad. So we've got four in France we've got a couple in the States and it's growing all the time isn't yeah it? it's and growing it's all the time and it's we've never done any sort of marketing in inverted commas it just seems to be people who now people sort of have heard about it I think so we just you know and it's lay it's run by lay people 
which is great. It really seems to promote unity in, in areas because people come from different church backgrounds. It's ecumenical. It's not an Anglican thing. Uh, and so it's just a gathering of Christians once a month in an area, in a non-church venue, just a place they can come and hopefully just get some good worship teaching, be, be prayed for. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, hopefully be filled up in order to go out and do what, what the, maybe the Lord's asked them to do in their local church or elsewhere. Having said that, we have felt the last few years, God, in, uh, just we've found ourselves praying a lot more about being particularly more intentional about evangelism. Renewal is wonderful, but it's got to lead to evangelism. And that's where you're... And that's where, from. yeah. So the, the last, sort of about three years ago, I came, I'm actually self-supporting, but I, I am sort of overseeing the evangelism. So really just trying to encourage the teams to, you know, it's not just a sort of we all come and we get a lovely top up from God and then, but actually that, you know, those streams of living water would flow through. Mm -hmm. So trying to encourage teams to put on at least annual evangelistic events um, and just to sort of think outwardly as well as sort of, you know, coming and meeting with God themselves and being encouraged, which obviously that's great. So um, as the director of evangelism, you're encouraging people in the local filling stations to reach out to their local communities. Yes. But also you're the director of mission as well, and you take mission trips, don't you, abroad? Yeah. And I think you've been to South Africa again this year um, because you want to give people an experience of what um, life is like on a mission field. Yeah, well. yeah. That came out of actually, I think I had just been praying as the ministry started to grow. I just found myself praying, um, Lord, give us, you know, some sort of outreach um and i didn't have a clue what that would look like and obviously there's so many things that one could be involved in this country but with our links in south africa it's just the way the lord led us to link up with this organization uh based in south africa they're actually in the east of the country it was not an area we knew well in south africa they're called hands at work and they're an amazing christian organization they don't call themselves an organization they call themselves a family um, and they are uh, outreaching to AIDS, orphans, and vulnerable children. But it's very much a community-based way of caring, which for long-term, you know, there's 4 million Afri uh, orphans in South Africa alone. It's, it's a much more sort of long-term feasible model to get the local church in these communities, incredibly poor rural communities, looking after their own poor and orphans. Um, and they do it in a, an extraordinarily amazing way. Um, and there are an amazing group of people i don't think i've ever met a group of people who have their have had their hearts so broken for the poor it's very challenging when you go out there so yeah so we've been taking some teams out there so if people want to connect with the filling station either just to go to a local meeting or to know more about mission um there's a website i presume yes you have? yeah yeah there is a website the fillingstation.org.uk and they can just um and they can see where their local meetings are and find out which one is closest to them and then all the details will be there for that local meeting in terms of the, who's the administrator when they meet who's speaking the next uh, meeting they, they can get all the information and they'd be very welcome to go absolutely on. very welcome and and in and if their area you know if they feel maybe the lord is calling them to set one up in their area the best thing is to uh, obviously look at the website get praying we always say get a group you need a team you need a team to do it uh of like-minded people who've got the same heart and passion and it's amazing how often richard goes around and you know people ring him up and they say oh we think you know we just read about the filling station or we went to one and we think can we do one in our area and he'll say yeah you know and he goes and chats with them and sort of shares the vision and mm. and so often you'll find that these groups you know they've been praying for years for god to do something in their area where maybe you know there's not much happening at the moment. So that's always an encouragement. Definitely. Well, as an organisation, Precept Ministries, we teach people and engaging in a practical way to study the Bible, and we resource them through workshops and different studies. Um, but how important is the Bible to you, Joe? Because, again, you've shared something of your journey and how difficult that was, and in, in your real times of crisis, it was you weren't able to really pray or mm. read the Bible. You held on to that verse um, when you were able to come out of that dark place. Um, what about, I think you've told me that the Psalms are really important to you. Um, why is that? Yes, I think that, um, you know, the experience of depression, 
and I have, you know, it hasn't completely gone uh, over my life. And certainly, as I say, I had it for eight years, really, after the children were born. Um, I think what I found encouraging when I really started, <laughs> the Psalms was the only place, really, where I could find people saying, well, except that, that Paul does talk about, you know, doesn't he being under great pressure. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, where David or others are just crying out, saying, God, where are you? You know, why have you forsaken me? Um you know, I'm in this pit, <laughs> only you can get me out. Um, and I think those more lamenting psalms, those psalms of sort of cries for help particularly spoke to me. So there was definitely a phase where I just read the psalms. And if they were all the sort of jolly ones, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, it was the ones where it was sort of like, Lord, get me out of this pit. Mm. Um, they're very real, aren't they? They're very real and real emotions. And um, so they did come to mean, I used to find the Lord speaking to me through the psalms and you told me before we started talking that psalm 34 uh, verse 4 actually was really significant to you i'm just going to read that uh, it says i sought the lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears um and so although you continuing to at times just um battle a little bit with, mm. with depression um you hold on to that truth absolutely i think one of the things that came out of that experience you know, depression is, is, is horrible. <laughs> and there is obviously a danger that you go back into it. And I remember when I came out of it, you know, there's always a fear that you're going to go back into it. And, um, and actually, if when you are in it, it's, it's a scare, it's quite scary, it is scary. Um, and so I would say, actually, probably more recently, I would say, that scripture, I've just decided I'm just gonna, I don't, you know, I keep saying to God, I don't want to live with fear. And I do feel it's been a process. I do feel, particularly over the last 10 years, he's been working in that area. The other thing that I associated with depression, which often happens, was I, I, I couldn't sleep at all. Um, and of course, it's very, f not being able to sleep and, and lying in bed feeling suicidal. You know, those, those things were very, so the thing of not sleeping, when I started to feel better, I would feel very, fearful of not sleeping because in my head I associated it with not feeling very nice um, and the other scripture in Psalm 91 you know where God says that you will not fear the terror of the night I literally would feel quite terrified sometimes of getting into my bed because I would be scared of not sleeping and it was all a sort of big mess in my head but you know it was all so associated so that was another scripture I remember saying okay Lord I'm standing on that you're going to deliver me from the fear of not being able to sleep which may sound crazy to some people, but because, as I say, it was so associated in my head with all this other stuff. Um, so there are several scriptures like that. Um, but I, I've certainly, you know, said to God, I don't want to be a woman who fears, um, whether it's depression or anything else, actually. And there's been certainly times when I've had to just step out. Uh, I was, I listen to quite a lot of Joyce Meyer, who I really like, and, you know, I love the way she just says, do it afraid you know do it afraid and there have been times where I've had to step out worrying that I'm going into a situation where I potentially couldn't sleep or you know going abroad or doing something and I've just had to do it anyway and trust God so that's also in my head but I you know I don't want to be I don't want fear to have any hold over me but again that's the Lord has to deliver us doesn't he yeah I mean obviously you can stand on those scriptures but it's you partnering with God in this so and on a daily basis um are you what are you reading at the moment um, I'm actually reading uh, through Ephesians, but trying to sort of meditate a bit more on it um, and even trying to learn a little bit of it. I don't think I'm not particularly good at being very methodical with my Bible study. Um, I used to, you know, I did Bible in a year and those sort of things. Um, I think this year I've just been sort of, you know, I, it's almost like, Lord, what am I going to read today? But at the moment I'm doing Ephesians. And I'm also reading One Kings, actually, because I try and read, you know, a bit of the Old Testament as well. Um, so, yeah, and just trying to learn a little bit more about meditating, I think, on, you know, rather than sort of rushing through reading something, just taking a one scripture mm. and just meditating on it and chewing it over. Chewing it over. Mm. 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 Well, before we finish, Joe, I have to mention the tennis word. Oh, tennis yes. Tennis is quite <laughs> an important part of your life, isn't it? You told us that you did a tennis coaching course um, when Richard was at Theological College to earn a little bit of money. Um, I also believe you're a member of the All England Lawn Tennis um, 
yes 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 and that's obviously molly it was so nice that's how we met you and nigel through the tennis world uh, which has been so lovely uh nigel is a fantastic tennis player molly's husband uh, i am nowhere near his league but amazingly i by the grace of god i did get into the all england club um in my mid-30s uh, my father was quite involved he was a member and on the committee he put my name down when i was 15. so um yes i've always loved tennis uh, i never played county or national standard but i played sort of university and uh, i've always enjoyed it so um it is i do uh, I, I actually try and get up to london a little bit and play at the all england and it's a wonderful thing i feel it's been such a gift from god because it's so completely different to what we do day to day it's it's a mission field in itself you know it, it's through my tennis probably i think the longer you're in christian ministry don't know if you find this molly you know the easier it is is just to spend time with christians and actually you don't have that many opportunities to even sort of meet or mingle with non-christians whereas my tennis has given me an opportunity to um you know to come into contact with people who don't know the lord yet <laughs> so you know i i have a group of ladies i play down with here in bath and all of them in different ways have uh, god has been moving in their lives i pray for them all quite a lot and actually whenever things go wrong for them they always will ask me if i will pray for them and i say well you know you can actually pray yourselves but you know i believe that that god has been using has used tennis actually um i love doing it but i also feel he has used it and given me opportunities i might not have had otherwise mm. joe it's been an absolute delight and a joy to spend time talking with you today i know that um the listeners to this podcast are going to really appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability and um so thank you the lord bless you and again uh, do connect with the fillingstation.org.uk see if there's a filling station local to you uh, but thank you again for listening today and god bless you thanks molly it's been lovely to be with you Thank you. You have been listening to The Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Preset Min UK.